Well, it's good to be back here at uh, Shehalem Valley. I think I've been delinquent for quite a while, trying to remember last time I was here. Uh, but not much has changed. One big change in my life since I've been here with you is that I have to wear reading glasses all the time now. So I have them sprinkled throughout my life. Uh, I'm always losing them, but have a pair in the car, one in my satchel, in my pockets, all over the place. And then also, all of our children are grown now. If you remember, some of our five children or all of them, they're all grown, but only one is not living with us. And so Glenda and I are thinking, we're going to move out of our house. It's like Hannah, our oldest, came back from the Coast Guard, and she's going to nursing school at University of Portland. And to save money, she's living in a vintage camper trailer in our driveway, which means she's always in our house. And Everett, the only one who doesn't live at home, he lives six blocks away <laughs> with five other of his fellow employees at Vacasa. So they're always over at our house because, you know, food's, you know, expensive and you have to prepare it. So, and then Benjamin is a plumber's apprentice, but he lives at home too. And finally, we got a smart one, Sophia. She's going uh, this fall to Western Washington uh, University in Bellingham. So we'll get one out the door. And then our, our baby is 17. So he's still with us at least for another year or 10. So, <laughs> you know, uh, Glenda and, and our kids, are they didn't come with me. They're at Evergreen because... Uh, Fikret Bocek, some of you might know, he's one of our missionaries in Izmir, Turkey. He is Turkish. Um, he just narrowly uh, won access out of the country with his two older kids. His wife, Darlene, and the two younger kids have been with us for two weeks in the Beaverton area. And, and um, uh, some of you have been praying for Pastor Andrew Brunson, who's been in prison for two years. He's the Southern Baptist minister of 30 plus years in Izmir, Turkey at Resurrection Church. And uh, in a court case on Wednesday uh, in Izmir, the judge sent him back to prison. And um, the, the Turkish government has uh, indicted both Fikret and Andrew uh, as uh, CIA operatives. And for some reason, they haven't put Fikret into prison. But he's at Evergreen this morning, and so my family wanted to be there, and I, don't, I really don't blame them. But just to let you know that you were upstaged by Fikret in the middle of that crisis um, as he preaches to our congregation and as they meet to pray for him and for uh, the church he serves, Reformation Church in Izmir. So... Um, well, I, I'm going to uh, I'm going to preach a sermon to you that I, I probably preached here a decade ago, so I'm figuring you don't remember it if you were here. Um, and it's a sermon that I've preached probably six or seven times in the last 26 years to my congregation, and every time I preach it, it gets better. So, as <laughs> so I find something else to say, but it it is a sermon that. Um, deals with a text that 
happens to be a heartbeat for me and for the congregation that I serve. So if you would uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, I'll read verses 6 through 9. It's just a little text, a little parable that Jesus told. And as I read, as I read these verses, remember, these are the very words of God. And Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. May God richly bless us with the reading of his word today. May he work it into our hearts and into our obedience. I don't know if you know much about fig trees or if you like to garden. I don't know how you're gardening season is going. It's been at the Lewis home where we are avid gardeners, it's been a really different uh, season and I don't know why, but we've had a number of our plants not bear fruit. Like there's, we have these beautiful green bean vines that put out these, uh, these uh, I mean, we were just shocked. We came out in the morning and the, and the flowers on them were a bright orange. Have any of you ever seen this? And then off of these prolific vines that are taller than I am, there's only like three or four beans. And then just the, the, the uh, weirdness of this growing season for us, I don't know what I did. I, I did something wrong. I don't know what. But about, I don't know, 22, 23 years ago, I planted in our backyard a fig tree for Glenda. As you know, my wife is Armenian, so there are, certain, um, there are certain aspects of life that must be in place for an Armenian to be content. And one is to have a fig tree. It's, if you don't, you can just figure that out on your own, I guess, no pun intended. But the, um, the fig tree I planted was, um, was uh, cultured at uh, uh, Oregon State University, go Beavs, to, um, to uh, grow uh, and to produce two crops of green figs in, in Western Oregon climate, which is no easy feat uh, to get a Mediterranean plant to do that. So I planted this uh, tree, and it's true that it, um, it takes for a fig tree and some other fruit trees about three years before um, they will produce any fruit. And that was true about Glenda's fig tree. And for most, most seasons since then, the fig tree has um, prolifically produced in late June, early July, and then once again in late September, early October. Uh, beautiful fruit. So my wife's been happy. But about every seven or eight years, 
that tree produces a lot of fruit, but it never ripens. And the reason why is that it takes a particular uh, species of wasp to crawl up into uh, each of the figs through the opening at the end of the fruit to pollinate. And for some reason, those wasps haven't showed up this year. So we have a tree that's full of this hard green fruit that's not going to be edible. Um, and so in, in our text, Jesus tells a, a parable, and it's a parable about a fig tree, and it's a parable about the owner of the fig tree and uh, the employer, uh, the employee of that owner uh, caring for the fig tree. And uh, there's, a, there's a number of little details that are fairly accurate. It's, it's a short parable, but it's packed with some uh, fairly interesting and accurate details. Uh, for example, uh, the owner, he, uh, he's planted a vineyard, and that is, seems to be his, um, his livelihood. That seems to be the profit that he's making off of his land. And... He plants for his own pleasure, not profit, but pleasure, a fig tree, because there's room in his vineyard for that. As you can imagine, you know, someone here in Yamhill County has a vineyard and has a lovely farm home on it, but there's some extra land around the house or around the edges of the vineyard, and he or she can plant other uh, trees and, and other kinds of uh, fruit-bearing plants for pleasure, not profit. And that's apparently what this owner has done. And he's patient because he doesn't, uh, he doesn't instruct the person working for him, this vine dresser, to cut down the fig tree until three years has passed. So the owner knows the nature of the fig tree he's planted, and he's expecting fruit in three years. And it, it doesn't show, so he considers the fruit tree uh, not to be worthy of uh, the dirt that he's planted it in. And, but he has planted it for his own pleasure, and his expectations are, are accurate, are, um, are reasonable. And so he tells uh, his vine dresser to cut it down. And so we immediately, we immediately think of, um, you know, because we're accustomed to Jesus' parables having some secondary meaning, right? He's not giving us a lesson on gardening. So we're asking the question like, who is the owner of this fig tree? And who's the vine dresser? So who do you think the owner of the fig tree is? He's planted the fig tree for his own pleasure, doesn't produce fruit, so he orders it to be cut down. Well, the way I've been raised and the Bible reading I've done, that sounds to me like God. God is the creator. He's the one who has made us for his own pleasure with the intention and purpose of producing fruit. And if we don't produce fruit, he has the right in his infinite justice to cut us down. Sounds like God to me. And so then... We meet the second uh, character in the parable, who's the vine dresser. 
you know, he's the one who takes care of the vines to produce grapes, to make wine. And uh, this vine dresser is given the order to cut down the fig tree. And he surprises all of us hearing the parable. And he, he uh, very politely begs to differ with the owner. And he begs for a year to cultivate the tree. He begs for time to personally get down around the roots and to dig around the roots in the dirt and to fertilize the fig tree. And so he intercedes on behalf of the fig tree and he wins a year, one more year, he begs of the owner. And, and uh, with all the intent of producing fruit, and then he says uh, to the owner, if it doesn't produce fruit in one more year, then you can cut it down. So the vine dresser very politely, though, refuses the command. He intercedes for the fig tree and he says, between the lines, I'm not going to cut down the tree. You can do that, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to work really hard. So then we're asking the question, well, who is this vine dresser? Well, I went to Sunday school. It sounds to me like Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like the incarnate son of God coming to earth, coming under the curse? Doesn't it sound like the one who intercedes for us, who goes before a just and holy God and says, hey, give me time to work with these uh, fallen creatures. You know, let me work for them. Let me make them good and fruitful. Doesn't it sound like the ministry of Jesus to you? And so then if, you know, if we've got the characters right, then who's the fig tree? Well, that sort of sounds like me. Sounds like us, right? We've been made for this glorious purpose to produce fruit, but we're not producing much fruit. We're not producing any fruit. God has the right to cut us down. And yet we have one who advocates for us, one who intercedes for us and allows the mercy of God uh, to come into our lives. So what is your view of Jesus? What is your view of God? Do you, uh, do you have a view of Jesus as uh, the one who is pure and holy and, and uh, separated from us? So like he has manicured fingernails and he reclines on a chaise lounge while other people peel fruit for him and run back and forth and buses drinks. I mean, like, what is your view of Jesus? You know, do you see him with a shovel in his hands? You see dirt under his fingernails? You picture Jesus down in the dirt at your roots, digging, putting organic fertilizer getting dirty. Like some people's view of Jesus is that he digs up dirt on us. That's their view of the church too, by the way, in the name of Jesus, digging dirt up on us. But this parable says that Jesus digs in the dirt for us. 
You know, well, yeah, we're a good, strong, reformed, rightly ordered church. We dig up dirt on each other. Well, what's your view of Jesus? Is he the, the vineyard police? The security team? Do you see Jesus kneeling at your feet, digging in the dirt to produce your fruit? Oh, no, no, no. I, I kneel before Jesus. I kiss his popish ring. And Jesus tells this parable that sort of makes us think about Jesus kneeling at our feet, humbly serving us, working tireless, tirelessly on our behalf, working for a whole year. You know, the Son of God left the glories of heaven, and he did not think that all of the lavishness of heaven, which he deserved and enjoyed for all eternity, is something that he should hold on to. But he voluntarily followed the command of his heavenly Father, and he descended into this world. The one who spoke light into existence, the one who actually manipulated carbon, dirt, to make our race, descended after he declared the common curse upon the world because of human sin, he descended into this world to get his hands dirty, to come under the curse, to work against the common curse so that we might produce fruit. And so the humility of Jesus just leaps out of this parable. We see him. I mean, I mean how... How are we to respond to looking down at our feet, looking down past all of our unfruitfulness to our feet and see the perfectly, infinitely righteous Son of God bending low there to dig in the dirt around our roots to produce our fruitfulness? To what extent is the vine dresser willing to go for the good of the tree? He refuses to cut it down. There's some kind of connection that he's, that he's developed between the tree. You know, for those three years, he must have really become attached to that tree. I mean, Glenda and I know what that's like. I mean, it's difficult for us to think about life without the fig tree. And this is a difficult season because that fruit is not ripening. But we are committed to that tree. Like some of you are committed to your dogs and cats and maybe your children. But there is a connection. <laughs> There's a connection, right? And, and this vine dresser, for some reason, is unwilling. He, he begs for a year. What do you think when that year comes up that vine dresser is going to do? I kind of think he's going to beg for another year. And he's made it really clear at the end of this little parable that he ain't cutting down the tree. The God of infinite justice and holiness can cut down the tree. He has every right to do so. He planted it for his pleasure and there's no fruit. But the vine dresser just won't do it. So, at this point, you're probably thinking, well, 
Nathan knows that we're to interpret Scripture by Scripture. We're supposed to look at the whole counsel of God. And I'm pretty sure that there is another text or two in the New Testament about Jesus and fig trees. And so, you know, it all sounds really good that this vine dresser is all for the fig tree, culturing it towards fruitfulness, but I know another story. And it's not a parable. It's a narrative. It really happened, and it has to do with Jesus and a fig tree. And so I'm not so sure we should just run so fast to this beautiful, sappy gospel message about Jesus giving everything to, to make us fruitful when we know that God is just and holy and demands perfect obedience from us and that in the end we're going to have to pay for our unfruitfulness. And that's, you know, that's what happens in Jesus' real life, not in the stories he tells. Because we know that in Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, and in Mark's gospel, chapter 11, there's this little story about Jesus hungry on the road between Bethany and Jerusalem, seeing a fig tree. And he sees that it is mature, beautiful green leaves out, and he goes up to it, voracious, and looks under the leaves, and there is not one fig. And so he curses the fig tree to the shock of his disciples. And then the next time they pass that fig tree, it is completely dead. Did you know that story? Yeah, so, you know, preacher, try to make a happy ending to the story and all. You know, Jesus loves us and cares for us and cultures our fruit. But, you know, he cursed the fig tree. He had, a very, he had every right to curse the fig tree. And he killed that fig tree. Yeah, that, he did that, by the way, after he entered Jerusalem, the people praising him as the king, as Messiah. He came into Jerusalem, and on that visit to the temple, it was the second time that he found the money changers having a flea market in the Gentile court. It's the second time that he cast them out in righteous indignation. He cleared the temple court. And yes, he also cursed the fig tree. You know what? Through Jesus' life, he makes it very difficult for us to fall into one of the historic Christian cults uh, or heresies that say that Jesus only had one nature expressed at a time that he was divine and, and sort of took on a human nature and, and, and lost his divinity, or that he was merely human and, uh, because he gave up his divinity. All these different ways when uh, the Gospels present uh, Jesus, who is very God and very human at the same time, and it's really hard to separate out one from the other. So yes, as the creator of all things, as the Lord of the universe, 
even in his incarnation and humility, Jesus does give hints and behaves like the Lord and the Creator. He comes into Jerusalem. It's his holy city. He doesn't deny the praises of the people. He deserves those praises. He's Messiah. It's his house. It's his father's house. They've made it a robber's den. He, he braids a cord. He whips them out of there. He turns over their tables and scatters their prophets. He says, get out of my father's house. You've made it a robber's den. He's the strong Lord who has every right to purge the community and to promote holiness. He has every right to do that. He's hungry. After all, he's just been through a very difficult weekend in the holy city. He goes out there in the countryside on the way back to Bethany to get some rest, and he's hungry, and there's no fruit on that fig tree. He curses the fig tree, and it dies. Well, that's the story. That's the reality. You know, time to grow up. You heard the gospel in Sunday school, but now you're older. It's time to be a big boy and a big girl and just face the big sad truth that God is just and he must punish sin and we're all in deep trouble. He cursed the fig tree and it died. But that's not all of the story, right? Because we're talking about that particular week in Jesus' life where when he came back from Bethany again, he wasn't coming back to a parade praising his glory and royalty. He came back to put a Roman cross on his shoulders and to buckle underneath the weight of it. He didn't come back to get his hands dirty with manure. He came back to subject his hands to cruel nails. He didn't come back to sweat laboring under the common curse like our first father Adam and all of us since him. He came back to shed his blood. He came back not to simply roll back the curse in our gardens, but he came back to, as the Apostle Paul says, become the curse for us. For, he says, quoting the ancient Hebrew scriptures, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. He didn't come just to destroy the fig tree. He came to be spread out and pinned to a tree so that we might not simply bear fruit, but live in God's pleasure forever. Now that's the whole story. So I come back to this little hint in the parable, and I take great hope from it. Take great hope from it. That all along the way, you see, sometimes, um, like we, we get stuck in ruts. I do. I've been preaching for a year and a half in the book of Exodus. And I finally see the end. I can finally finish on August 19. The only way I'm going to finish is that in two weeks from now, I'm going to have to preach three chapters all at once. Because there's so much repetition in it. It's like, really, there's only two points. So I'm going to preach that whole thing, and then people are going to just think that I'm just trying to get it over. But uh, that's what I'm going to do. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in an exodus rut. 
and the Exodus rut is it's a good rut and it leads to the gospel. And that is God has given his law to us. And the demand that comes with the law is that if we obey it, we're blessed. But if we disobey it, we're cursed. And the demand is that we must obey 100% of it. We must perfectly obey it. And so then the gospel comes into that in that Jesus has perfectly obeyed the law. And then he has won that blessing for perfect obedience and he shares it with us. And he takes the curse for our obedience, disobedience upon himself, right? Suffers hell in our place so that we are free, so that we may never suffer God's wrath. This little parable tells us something that is correlative to that, but slightly distinct in that God has made us for his pleasure and we have failed to please God because of our unfruitfulness. And so Christ Jesus comes and cultures fruit in us so that we might please God. And so here we have the gospel of restoration Here we have the gospel of Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit into our lives to produce his fruit so that we might please God. Here we have a parallel uh, trajectory in the scriptures to the law uh, gospel uh, uh, path, the law where we are atoned for our sins. This other path is the path of freedom. It's the path of fruitfulness. It's the path where... uh, Our created uh, origin and purpose is all restored. And we are fruitful and we please God forever. And Jesus does this work. This is why he sent the Holy Spirit to us. Not only to make us more holy as God is holy, you know, to root out sin in our lives, but also to produce his fruit in our lives. And this is the work of Jesus. And so it's really a a great truth. Um, Just something else for you to chase down as you're thinking of how to respond to all of this. Um, In Mark and Matthew's gospel and those those parallel fig tree texts, uh, the disciples are just, they don't They don't have a category for Jesus cursing the fig tree. And Jesus takes the opportunity to talk to them about faith. And uh, he tells them that if they're united to him, then they can pray in faith and everything's possible. So he calls them to faith. But in um, Luke 11... The context of this parable isn't faith, but it's repentance. And this is the parable where, you know, this this awful mass murder occurs in Galilee. And and, uh, Jesus says, do you think those people who were cut down by the tyrant in Galilee are worse sinners than you? And he says, I tell you the truth, you're all equally sinful. So unless you repent, there's, there's really a, a bad end to your life coming. And then he says, yeah, so you think that when that uh, Tower of Siloam 
fell and killed 18 people here in Jerusalem. That's an accident. You think those people, the victims of that accident, that they're worse sinners than you? Well, I hate to tell you, but you're all equally sinful, and so unless you repent. And so uh, this is one of the main textual reasons why the church has, has spoken of faith and repentance together as God's twin gifts to us and, God's twin, and, God, and our two responses to God is that we respond to God in faith and, and also in repentance. And since this little parable is in the context of repentance, uh, when, we, when we see Jesus working around our roots and producing fruit, we have to think about repentance as one of those fruit, right? And, we have to, and, and then we're moved to a daily repentance. When we think of Jesus cursing the fig tree as recorded in Mark and, and Matthew, and Jesus says to his disciples, and everyone gets, you know, all distracted about, he says, you know, if you pray in faith, you can move mountains. And we go, really? Really? And then it just becomes a cynical, doubting moment for us. And then Jesus says, by the way, you can do the impossible. And he gives an example. Do you remember what his example is? Forgiving someone who sinned against you. He says, you, I'm talking to you, you can do anything, like move mountains. For example, you can actually forgive someone who's truly harmed you. You can do that if you have faith in, in, in Jesus, in, in me. And so this is how, you know, how do we respond? How do we respond to uh, such a, a beautiful and caring Savior who kneels at our feet and works righteousness in us? How do we respond to that? Well, we believe. And what does it mean to believe? Oh, it means we can do great things. Well, it actually, faith is focused upon Christ and the great things he has done for us. And then it is our following in those. Namely, as he said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It allows you and me to forgive others as Christ has forgive, given us, just as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, as he taught us to pray. And then it also, I mean, how do we respond to such a loving and caring Jesus Christ, digging, the, the, digging around our roots and fertilizing us to fruitfulness? Well, that daily repentance, repenting of our sins, um, keeping short accounts with God. Um, because after all, we're no better than anyone else. And, and so that's where Jesus is going with all of this, to move us to faith and repentance. I trust that um, you'll take hold of the gospel and uh, see what a beautiful message and reality it is that God's mercy has triumphed. His grace has been poured out in great measure upon us. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He just hasn't bought a year. He's bought an eternity. He's committed to us. The parable doesn't say it, but I can hear Jesus coming back year two and saying, 
give me another year. And his father's going to listen to him because he's given his life for us. The father knows this. The fig tree's never being cut down again. It's being ushered into a new heavens and new earth where it will bear fruit in every season forever. Let's give him thanks. So we do give you thanks, Father, for sending the Son to dig in our roots, for covering our sins with his blood, and protecting us for an eternity so that we might live in your pleasure forever. Father, I pray your blessing upon this congregation that she would know how high and deep and wide is your love for her, that she may know how to express that love to each and every member so that this might be seen as a house of the living God, a refuge for the weak and the broken, a place for restoration, a place where your gospel is not only proclaimed, but lived, experienced, and felt. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.